following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 28th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. We're going to continue now in our worship as we read and we teach from God's Word. And as I prepared for this morning and, and thank the Lord for everyone that he's chosen to add to our number over the last decade. And then on a morning like this, those that he's continuing by his grace to add to our number. I, I thought about what God's been saying through the book of Philippians so far, this, this repetitive single-mindedness that you and I are to wake up on a daily basis and be reminded that we are, by God's grace, meant to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. As I, I thought about what God has been doing and adding in the 10 years, as I thought about that encouragement and really injunction towards the church that we've been talking about and thinking about, I was reminded of something written by Eugene Peterson, who, who the church lost this week, who, who passed away this week, something that he wrote decades ago that has stuck with me and is even more probably profound now, almost 30 years after he wrote it. Peterson said this, he said, this world is no friend to grace. A person who makes a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior does not find a crowd of people immediately forming to applaud the decision or old friends spontaneously gathering around to offer congratulations and counsel. Ordinarily, there's nothing directly hostile but an accumulation of puzzled disapproval and agnostic indifference constitutes nevertheless a surprisingly formidable opposition. He's just making note that as we live our lives in the grace of God, a manner worthy of the gospel, there, there is a, a, a formidable opposition that exists to that, an agnostic indifference that, that tempts us to well, to any number of things. And Paul has already helped us to see so far in this letter that there is this external pressure to conform to patterns and, and powers and thoughts and priorities of the world around us different to those of the grace of God that has saved us. And, and Peterson's acknowledging the same thing. But as we saw last week, there's even an internal temptation that threatens the health, the well-being, and the stability of the church. And, and Peterson gives voice to that as well, a, a voice that also helps take us to where Paul is going in the text this morning. Peterson kept writing, and he said that you and I assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials, our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. Oh, stop for a second. He wrote this almost 30 years ago. What didn't exist 30 years ago? This thing. Internet. Social media. Flattened by 30-second commercials. How about 140-character statements? The ability to just scroll through anything we don't want to pay attention to. He said, we, our sense of reality has been flattened by these 30-page abridgments. And it's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It's terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. 
Millions of people in our culture, he said, make decisions for Jesus. But there's a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. He went on to say there's a great market for religious experience in our world, yet there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. He said, Nietzsche, who saw this area of spiritual truth at least with great clarity, wrote, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, thereby resulting, as has always resulted in the long run, in something which has made life worth living. And Peterson said, it's this long obedience in the same direction which the mood of our world does so much to discourage. And as Paul picks up his train of thought in Philippians chapter 2, continuing to expound on what it means for you and I as God's people to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's this long obedience in the same direction. It's the ordinary faithfulness of God's people that Paul is going to again encourage us towards for our joy and God's glory. As you and I strive to live lives together, as he has said, in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul's going to bring this thought to a head with one big encouragement. And that's simply this, as we strive together for the gospel, as we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, in light of the ever-flattening pressures that are exerted upon us, you and I are to encourage one another, as long as it's called today, to keep enjoying grace. That's the message. Look down at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, and we're just going to read a few verses here this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do nothing without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is how Paul brings to a conclusion the long-standing encouragement that he's been working on that you and I are, as God's people, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as he brings it to a conclusion, he says that you and I are to keep enjoying grace. I've got to pay attention to what he said because if you don't pay attention, it may sound like to you that Paul just said the actual opposite of that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Is Paul saying now after all of this encouragement that you and I have to earn our salvation? That sounds like the opposite of continuing to enjoy grace. It sounds like I'm making something up completely. 
unless you slow down, Paul did not say, work for your salvation. It's very important. Your mind and your heart are going to play all kinds of tricks on you if you don't slow down. Paul did not say, work for your salvation. This is antithetical to everything that Paul has told every church and any person who would ever listen to him. In fact, in the great letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that it was by grace that you and I have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Paul has told every church, including this church, as we've seen in the beginning of the letter, that God by grace has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. This is the good news of the gospel. In fact, in in Ephesians chapter 2, what I just read, if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, Paul will make it all the more clear. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul says, you, speaking to every person who has ever been born on the face of the earth, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. This is the reality of everyone from the moment that we are born. Our hearts are hardened to the reality of who God is for us. Our hearts are hardened to the reality of the glory of God. Our hearts are hardened to the reality of the mercy and the grace and the holiness of God. Our hearts are born zealous for our own name. Our hearts are born zealous for our own glory. Our hearts are born zealous for our own righteousness. Which is why Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God. I mean, that's the reality that each and every single one of us are born into. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is the grace of God that has opened up our eyes to see his glory in the person and work of his son. It is the grace of God at work that changes the reality of our heart's hope. It is the reality of God's grace that even enables us to have the confidence and the faith to turn from our sins and turn to Jesus as our king and as our savior. It is God by his grace that has saved us. It's God by his grace that has enabled us. It is God by his grace that continues to change us. He does all of that. It's his work of grace in us. In fact, I love how Paul talks about this to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter six, verse 14. Paul reminds them that sin shall not be their master, nor have dominion over you, because you're not under the law, but under grace. What Paul is saying is that quite literally, the grace of God has now become the overriding, domineering force and motive and reality in your heart. God, by his grace, has set you free from the power of sin in your heart. God, by his grace, has set you free through the sacrifice of his son, through the penalty of your sin. It is his grace right now that is domineering over your life and over your heart. Grace has dominion. That's what Paul is saying. 
So when we come to what he's encouraging the church in now in Philippians chapter two, he's not saying work for your salvation. That is the antithesis of the gospel. Paul is saying work out your salvation. Work out in your life what it means to live in the light of God's sovereign grace. Work out what it means in your life to live in the reality of who he has made you by his grace and what he has done by his grace. This is the long obedience in the same direction. This is the apprenticeship to holiness. Work out our salvation. Live in the light of God's grace. It's another way of saying live in the manner worthy of the gospel. Paul is just a good pastor. He's just a good preacher. He's just repeating the same thing over and over in a different way until everybody gets it. It's going to take a different statement, a different phrase, a different explanation for the penny to drop in everybody's heart and everybody's mind. Paul isn't saying anything new. To work out your salvation is to work out in the everyday realities of life what the domineering drive and priority and power of grace is at work in you. It's another way of saying to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, living in a way that in our priorities and in our motives, in our speech, in our action, in our daily lives, we demonstrate to a watching world that Jesus is indeed worth it. Paul's been saying the same thing over and over. But if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, which is the way we read the Bible, then we've got to acknowledge that when Paul talks about working out our salvation here in this letter where he writes it, this is the concrete way that Paul explains or gives illustration to what he says a couple words earlier when he encourages the church to keep obeying. When Paul defines obedience for this church, he defines it as working out your salvation living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Obedience looks like connecting the riches of the gospel, the riches of God's grace to the realities of your everyday life so that you and I can increasingly live in a manner worthy of the gospel. A manner of living that displays to a watching world that there is no greater joy to be found than the joy that is found in Jesus. Working out your salvation. Obedience connecting the riches of the gospel to the realities of everyday life means waking up each day with the framework, with the understanding that Paul's already been talking about, that God, by his grace, has made us citizens of a new kingdom. Very practically, I'll give you an example of what it looks like for me. When I wake up in the morning and I turn my head over to my left, because my wife and I sleep on the same side of the bed every single night we have for 17 years. I turn my head to the left. It means I wake up from that moment with the overriding filter, the overriding priority, the overriding picture that God by grace has made me a citizen of his kingdom, which means I, like Paul told the church in Corinth, am an ambassador of the gospel. So the way that I speak to her, the priorities I have with her, the priorities that I have with my kids, the way that I speak and I act and the priorities and the motivations of my life from that moment when I wake up to the rest of my day are meant to reflect the will and the glory and the majesty of my king. Living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, working out the realities of my salvation, connecting the riches of God's gospel and grace to the realities of my everyday life, all of those things are saying the same thing. What's it look like 
in this situation right now for grace to be the domineering master of my heart. This is what Paul is talking about. Maturity, and we've talked about it here all the time. Spiritual maturity is simply the continual working out of these gospel realities. As we continue to work out these realities more and more in all the situations and circumstances that we face in each day, as you and I encourage each other, as long as it's called today to live in the realities of this grace, we increasingly, bit by bit, continue to mature into the image and likeness of Christ. It's just the ordinary faithfulness of God's people through which God does the extraordinary in our lives and through our lives for his glory and our joy. He's just saying the same thing over and over and over again. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel and do it with fear and trembling. Now that again, if you don't slow down, sounds like the opposite of enjoying grace. Enjoy the grace of God. Continue to enjoy God's grace. Encourage one another to enjoy God's grace, but do it with fear and trembling. It sounds like he's undoing the very thing that he's encouraging, but that's, that's not what's happening. When Paul talks about us living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, enjoying God's grace with fear and trembling, he's not saying that we're supposed to be anxious about whether or not we're good enough. There isn't supposed to be a fear and trembling as to whether or not we're going to do it right, whether we're going to get it right. To the grace of God has clothed us in the right standing, the righteousness of Christ. That's not something that we have to worry about. When Paul says that we are to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, working out our salvation, connecting the riches of grace, the realities of our life with fear and trembling, he says in verse 13, 4, because, here's why, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What Paul is saying is that we work out our salvation in all because God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, our redeemer, our justifier, our sustainer, he is alive and at work in us. That he's the one at work in us, willing towards his good pleasure, working towards his good pleasure. Paul's not simply saying that we work out the realities of our salvation in God's presence, like he has an eye on it and we should always know that he's watching and therefore we work it out this way. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about working out our salvation, connecting the grace of God to the realities of life every day in all because the one who saved us is at work empowering us towards that end. And with that mind, Paul says we should stand in awe and tremble. The very thought of such grace in us, towards us. We love to teach these verses, and they have their right application, but we love to teach these verses in a very individualistic way. The truth of what Paul says is true for you, your heart, and your life. But don't forget, he's writing in the plural form. This is a corporate letter. All the pronouns, all the verbs here in chapter two, they're all plural. This is a y'all letter. There's a corporate dimension that Paul intends for the church to see and to understand in this working out of our salvation. 
See, Paul is reminding us that even together, we work out the realities of God's grace as we strive together for the sake of the gospel to maintain the unity that he established. And we do it as he's already encouraged us, as we consider one another more significant than ourselves. In fact, you'll see in verse 14, one aspect of what he's saying in line with his entire encouragement is that we, as God's people, are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. One aspect of what he's saying there is that together we're challenged to put to death the words and attitudes that would tear apart the relational fabric of the church. It's a corporate thing. Yes, God is at work in me, working and willing for his good pleasure, empowering me to connect the riches of the realities of God's grace to my own life in every dimension, but together, He's at work in us, working in us for his purpose and our joy. Work out, Paul says, the realities of the gospel in your life. Work out your salvation. Work to connect the riches of God's grace to the realities of your life because God is already at work in you by his spirit, working and willing you towards the very thing he's calling you to. The whole thing is rooted and grounded in grace. The very desire to do his will, to obey him, to work out our salvation, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it comes from him. I love how in thinking about the the holistic nature of this reality, I love how how John Piper puts it. Again, he's going to say things that I could just never even come up with, but That's probably because 60 years in the ministry and thinking about these things, you season and you grow. He said, in thinking about the holistic nature of God's grace, saving me, opening up my heart to see Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to find joy in Jesus, to work out the realities of his grace in my life, to work out my salvation, he said, I am not waiting for a miracle. It's a fascinating thing if you and I are really honest about how we think about the way God works in the transforming of our hearts and lives. He said, I'm not waiting for a miracle. Every time I consider someone else as more significant than myself, to be very specific in this letter, every time the, the riches of God's grace are, are connected in a new or more full way to the reality of my life, I am acting out the miracle. I'm not waiting for God to come and do some thing to me that all of a sudden everything is fixed. That expectation that everything changes in a moment, that flattened sense of reality, that 140 characters, instantaneous, it's all supposed to happen. I'm waiting for this to happen. He said, no, every single time, I'm actually acting out the miracle of God's grace. Friends, this is a tremendous encouragement to the church. God is the one who is at work in us for his good purpose. And Paul has already told us, chapter 1, verse 6, what he has begun, he's going to complete. The work that God has started, he is going to finish what he has called us to to live in a manner worthy of his gospel. He has empowered us towards, and he's promised to bring it to fruition. 
If you're honest with yourself, the only right response to such grace, the only right response that, that magnifies the giver of such grace, the only right response that sufficiently magnifies the gift of grace to us, the only right response is to enjoy it. It's to enjoy it. It's to believe that it does in our lives and to let it do in our lives the very thing that God has promised. Let me see if I can help you see it this way. Every single child, and you may remember this from your own childhood or you can ask your kids if they're sitting here with you. Every single child at some point in their lives has a particular, let's say, car or vehicle that they absolutely love. And it matches their personality. If all my kids were in here, my son would talk about something that went really fast and was really shiny and was a really bright and obnoxious color. Every time he sees it, I want that thing. I've got to have that thing. I've got another daughter who loves trucks. If it's her personality. Everybody, you can remember back when you were a kid, there was a car or some vehicle that you wanted, right? I grew up in St. Louis for a little while out in the country, and we had a neighbor who was a hunter. And he had what is now a vintage, but at that point wasn't quite that old, Range Rover that he hunted with in other countries. And he had it brought to his house. I was six years old. I fell in love with that thing. I'd go sit in it. I'd go climb in it. He just let me sit there on the wheels with it. I love that thing. To this day, there is still a love affair in my heart with those things. But I'm a pastor. I know my lane. It's never going to be in my driveway. I get that. But if it were to show up one day, let's just say that thing that I could never afford, that thing that I could never earn, that thing that I could never get myself, it showed up one day in front of my house. What is the only right response that rightly magnifies the giver of such a gift and rightly magnifies the gift itself? It's to get in, strap up, turn it on, and go tear things up. It's not to sit there and stare at. It's not to park somewhere and cover up with a tarp so it doesn't get destroyed. No, it's to go sit in it and let it do the very thing it was created to do and enjoy it. That's what enjoying is. It's rightly responding to the thing that brings and cultivates and is such joy. The only right response to the magnitude of the grace of God that saves us, indwells us, empowers us, continues to conform us to the very thing we're called to be and do is to enjoy it. Let it do what God created for it to do. Enjoy it. So when Paul says keep obeying, and he defines obedience as working out your salvation, and working out your salvation is another way of understanding, connecting the realities of the gospel, the realities of grace to your everyday life. When he says keep doing as you're doing, what he's saying is keep enjoying God's grace. Keep on obeying and working it out in all. The God who saved you by grace is at work in you by grace for his glory and your joy. Keep enjoying grace. And as we do, as we continue to enjoy his grace, God uses us to light up the night as reflections of his grace. God takes the ordinary faithfulness of his people 
and in us and through us does something extraordinary. Look at what he says, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is Paul's concrete way of explaining working out your salvation. That's his application. He's not picking up a new thought. He's dealing with an illustration right here. Do all things. Not some things. Not some places. But all things without grumbling or disputing. And what Paul is doing here is giving voice to something all of us know to be true. Some of you have probably been thinking about it already as you've been reading through this letter. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Living in such a way in our everyday life, in all the places, situations, relationships, and circumstances God puts us in that reflects a greater joy that's found in Jesus. All of that is very difficult. One writer said, pursuing holiness, giving generously, practicing hospitality, loving one's spouse and kids appropriately, sharing the gospel, other facets of Christian discipleship, all of them could tempt someone to complain and grumble and murmur. Our transformation, our maturity, our continual living out this life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like Peterson said, it doesn't happen on our schedules. We assume that if something can be done, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Yet we're conditioned this instantaneous reality that we think should happen. Friends, it's not just a reality for our own individual life. Remember, this is a a church text. This is a corporate message. Paul is writing to the same people that he literally just said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vainglory. The same people that he just said, consider others more important than yourself. You realize that these are some of the very attitudes and actions that give temptation, that give rise in our hearts to grumbling and disputing. Listen, grumbling, complaining, arguing, disputing, these things tend to rise to the surface of our hearts, tend to rise to the surface of our lives when we have some unmet expectation. When we think somebody should do something we think should be done, and when we think somebody should do something we think should be done in the way we think it should be done, when that doesn't happen, the temptation for these things to rise in our hearts is tremendous. I mean, don't miss the fact that we live in a time and we live in a day when this kind of complaining, this kind of disputing, this kind of grumbling is the new national pastime. I mean, this is what so many people use things like social media for. I'm absolutely blown away at the way people, people I love, people I know, friends of mine, fellow pastors, use things like social media to complain, to grumble, and to manipulate things like even corporate decisions. It's unbelievable. I have friends that I'm somewhat shocked, and I've even asked them about, embarrassed, to read some of their tweets when they have been stuck in Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, complaining over and over again to get a free ticket out of it. It's unbelievable. When people fail to meet expectation that we have in our heart, whether it's agreed upon or not, 
And when people or organizations fail to do what we think they should do in the way that we think they should do it, this is the soil for these kinds of attitudes and responses to grow in our hearts. It's true in the church. In the healthiest of churches, pastors, community leaders, musicians, your own friends, members of the church, they're going to disappoint you. They're going to meet, they're going to fail to meet some stated and agreed upon expectation, and they're going to fail to meet some expectation that you have that no one's ever agreed upon. And they're going to fail to do things in the way you think they should be done. And when that happens, it's right there in that moment that you're going to be tempted to do the very thing that Paul is talking about here, to grumble, to complain, to dispute. I feel it in myself all the time. Ask me on a Monday morning what's going on in my heart. It's always been a real temptation amongst God's people. In fact, go read Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul reminds them how the Israelites, after having tasted the depth of God's grace towards them and setting them free from slavery in Egypt, caring for them as they were wandering through the wilderness, feeding them miraculously, giving them water miraculously, caring for them over and over and over again, every single time they allowed their eyes to shift, their gaze to shift from the grace of God continually towards them, towards something else, some expectation that they thought should be met in a particular way by God, some expectation that they had that no one else agreed upon, what did they begin to do? Grumble and complain. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 or verse, verse, six or verse 11, I can't remember. Paul says, and they suffered for it. And these stories, Paul said, God has kept as reminders of such things for us. And the challenge that Paul is putting before us in the church, the thing that Paul is reminding us of is this. When you and I face this very temptation to grumble, to complain, to dispute, what are we going to do? Brother, how can you and I in those moments, in those situations, and in those times of temptation, how can we maintain an attitude of joy. It's much easier when you and I are continuing to help one another enjoy God's grace. When in light of what we truly deserved, you and I help one another to keep our eyes focused on the grace of God in Christ towards us, living in the joy of what we have been given, continuing to work out the realities of his grace to us in our everyday lives. That is the key means that you and I have to push back against this ever-present temptation to complain and to grumble the very motive that we have to push back against such things is the grace of God. His saving grace, his sustaining grace, his indwelling grace, his empowering grace, the reality that in all that he's calling us to do, it's him who's at work in us. You and I are given each other in our relationships to help us avoid what the Israelites were constantly facing, taking our eyes off of God's continued grace to us and allowing our expectations that we put on him and on others to color the way we see and experience our world. When that would happen with them, they would lose heart. And we're no different. And friends, this is a big deal. 
It's not just because these attitudes are an affront to God's character and his grace. But listen to what Paul says. Look at verse 15. When he, when he says for us to do nothing with this kind of grumbling and disputing and arguing, look at what he says. Verse 15, that. Here's the, here's the effect. Here's the reason why I'm telling you this. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul said when this kind of grumbling and complaining and disputing, when it characterizes the the conversations, the speech, and the relationships, even amongst God's people, we lose the distinctiveness of the character that God has given us by his grace. As Jesus says, we lose our saltiness. We lose our effectiveness. The thing is, you and I can so easily rationalize it. We find someone that we can, we can say something to, that we can get something off our chest to, that we can grumble a little bit, complain a little bit. It feels safe. It's no big deal, right? Paul says that manner of thinking is wrong. In that very moment, we are surrendering the distinctiveness that God has given us by his grace. Friends, we live in a world where Nearly every other sentence in conversation in the world around us is some manner of complaint, some manner of grumbling, some manner of disputing for the sake of disputing, and it's done with such vitriol and emotion. Friends, when we give in to that, even amongst each other, when that spills over into our conversations with those who aren't even a part of God's people in the church, Paul says, watch out, we're losing the distinctiveness of the character of grace that God has given us. And the tone and the manner with which we deal with these things and speak these things and respond to these expectations, missed or not, is something that God uses in his sovereignty to change people's lives. Friends, he doesn't leave us alone in this. You listen to that and think, there's no way I can do that. He doesn't leave us alone to this either. He empowers us still by his spirit to speak even in ways that build up and don't tear down. See, the grace of God that has saved us, the grace of God that is continuing to change us, the grace of God that is now that dominating master of our heart, it has a distinctive tone to it. As you and I take the encouragement that Paul gives us and we continue together to enjoy God's grace, it's his grace that shapes and seasons the tones of our conversation, so much so that even when you and I have to communicate something to one another that might be difficult, might be honest, it might be an agreed-upon expectation that was missed and we need to talk about it, that even when we do that, there's a different aroma to it. There's a different smell to it. There's a different motive to it. There's a different hope and expectation attached to it because of grace. Where does that come from? Well, look at what he says. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. He says, holding fast. To the word of life. It's holding fast 
the truth of God's word. It's holding fast to the grace of God that he has given us in his word. It's holding fast to the grace of God in the gospel that continues to shape us, season us, transform us, that we, as one writer said, become a proclaiming church and not a complaining church. Because when a church tries to do both things, he said, when a church wants to be one that proclaims the grace of God to a watching world, proclaims the grace of God and the mercy of God in the person and work of Jesus, proclaims to a watching world the empowering grace of God that takes us from where we were and changes us into the image and likeness of Christ, while in the other side of the mouth, it encourages and allows the kind of complaining and grumbling Paul's talking about, they become a confusing church. Holding fast to the word of life seasons the tone even of our conversation as we're reminded to encourage each other as long as it's called today to live together in a manner worthy of the gospel. Helping one another connect the riches of God's grace to the realities of our everyday life. Pushing back against the ever-present temptations to conform to the patterns and speech and priorities and desires of a watching and dark world. Friends, the reality that Paul holds up for us this morning, take what he started back in chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to where we are now. It's one big encouragement. He says multiple ways, one big thing. As you and I continue to enjoy God's grace, use every phrase that he said, continue to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, continue together to work out our salvation, we light up the night as we demonstrate that Jesus is worth it. That's what he just said. We shine like lights in the world. As we hold fast to the word of life, Paul said God holds us out as exhibit A to a watching world of the power of his grace. Friends, that won't happen overnight. Paul knew this. It won't happen overnight. But it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's the encouragement to the everyday faithfulness and joy that's to be found in Jesus. It's the encouragement to us along the way to keep enjoying grace. And as we do, you and I will see evidences of transformation. We'll see evidences of growth as we commit ourselves together as God's people to help one another continue to enjoy the grace of God. We will see more clearly than ever that we are not what we once were. And we will cling to the hope that we are not yet what we will be when he returns. But together we've been given the privilege and by God's grace, through his spirit, the power to help one another continue to press on for joy. Friends, this is why we are here. This is the ambition and the purpose that God has given to his church. That we might live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In a way that demonstrates to a watching world that Jesus is indeed worth it. As you and I together hold fast to the word of life and encourage one another daily to connect the riches of God's grace to the realities of our everyday life, God lights up the night sky 
in us and through us as a living demonstration of the power of his glory and grace. Friends, this is why we're here. This is what we want. This is the privilege that we have. This is the encouragement that he gives. May it be true for us here. May this be the thing that we want. May this be the overwhelming desire of our hearts together as God's people for his glory and our joy. I'm going to pray for us this morning and then as his people this morning, we're going to respond to his word. And we're going to do it in a few different ways. The first way we're going to respond is by giving you a couple of minutes to reflect on his word, to pray, to deal with him, let him deal with you. There are a couple of prayers that are in your worship guide that can guide you in this time. And then for all of those who have tasted of the grace of God, who, whose eyes he's opened to see his glory in the face of his son, who, who he has given the faith to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus as king and savior, we are going to remember and celebrate his grace as we receive communion together. And then we're going to sing Use the mouths that he has given us to make much of him together and then we'll be sent out from here as his people all in a response to his grace this morning. So let me pray and then I'll give you a couple of minutes. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of the totality of your grace to us. That doesn't simply just save us as, as marvelous as that is, but the good news of your grace that by your spirit indwells us and empowers us to live lives worthy of your gospel. The very thing you call us to is the very thing you empower us for. The, the magnitude of your grace is staggering. This morning, we, we ask that you, by your spirit, would do the miracle that only you can do. You would bring us to that place of fear, of trembling, of all. The majesty of your grace to us through your Son. We ask this morning that you would do it in his name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.